Hello and welcome to Bramcast, a podcast by the Bram Stoker Club of the University Philosophical Society, Trinity College Dublin. My name is Stephen O'Sullivan and I'll be your host for today. Today, we're joined by Richard O'Raw. Richard O'Raw is a best-selling author of several books on the Troubles in Northern Ireland and two fiction novels. His writing is informed by, and in some cases, the story of, his previous life as a member of the Provisional IRA. O'Raw's first book, Blanket Men, recounted his own life, how he joined the IRA, and his time on the blanket and no-wash protests inside the H-blocks. It culminates in the story of the 1981 hunger strikers, as told from his perspective as their spokesman. The book sent shockwaves across Ireland and challenged the prevailing narrative on the hunger strikes. O'Raw wrote that after the deaths of the first four hunger strikers, an offer had been made by the British government through an agent codenamed Mountain Climber that acquiesced to four of the five hunger striker demands, including that to let the prisoners wear their own clothes. This, O'Raw writes, was thought sufficient to end the strike by leadership inside the prison, but was rejected by IRA leadership outside the prison and a further six men would die before the strike was ended. His most recent book, Steak Knife's Dirty War, tells the story of Freddy Scapatici, the highest-ranked known British agent within the IRA. In charge of the internal security unit, known as the Nutting Squad, Scapatici's role was to root out and kill informers within the IRA, all the while while he was an informer himself. The book investigates the life and crimes of Scapatici, It explores the British intelligence force's complicity in the murder and torture he dealt out, and it tells the story of some of the unfortunate men who endured and survived interrogation by the Nutting Squad. Today, we discuss both Steakknife's dirty war and Richard's own life and perspective, and he leaves us with what he would say to a young Irishman or woman that thinks they too would like to take up arms and to think that they are willing to die for their country. This is our conversation with Richard O'Raw. Ricky O'Raw, thank you for coming on to the podcast. So for the college student that wouldn't be well up in the troubles, they may know the name Freddy Scappatici, they may know the pseudonym or cover name Steakknife. But who was Freddy Scappatici? Um, Freddy Scappatici was a guy who came from an, an Irish-Italian family. His father was uh, an ice cream vendor. I came from a very respectable family, it has to be said. Scapatici's were highly respected in the markets area of Belfast. Freddie Scapatici was born in 1846. Um, he had a, a normal working class sort of background and rearing. It's working class backstreet, you know, the fisticuffs and the fighting and all of that comes with being in, in, in that environment. He was in this normal sort of, I don't want to, in any great detail in this. He had a normal sort of working class life. He was a scrapper. He, he would have put the fight, the Dukes up very handy to fight. And uh, and he was very bad tempered. He was in a volcanic temper. Those are the sort of things that marked him out as as a as a as a, an aggressive sort of a person. Uh, but then he came into his own really when the trouble started. Um, after the 15th of August, 1869, when whole Catholic streets of Belfast were being burnt down and vigilantes were formed in all the Catholic areas of Belfast, vigilante groups attacked the area. So Freddy Scapatici was born and reared in the markets area and he became a vigilante in the markets. 
in December 1970, the provisional IRA was formed. The IRA split. You had the official IRA, you had the provisional IRA. And so Freddy Scappatici in 1970, uh, in, in December 1970, joined the provisional IRA at its formation. And he became a member of the, the IRA company in the markets area. He was a natural leader. He was one of those guys who, if he was in a room, his presence would be noted by everyone else. He had a presence about him, and he soon rose to the rank of OC, the markets IRA, and the markets IRA. And the markets IRA was an important wee unit because it was actually in the Belfast city centre. And right from the get-go, the provisional IRA were one of their tactics was commercial bombing. They were bombing targets in the town, commercial premises, the idea being to hurt the British and, 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 and the, the British economic commitment to the north. So the market's done a fair bit of, of city centre bombing and Freddy Scappatici was in charge of all of that. And, uh, well, the next sort of, this next sort of mansion, if you want to call it that, was in the 9th of August, 1971, when internment was, was introduced and Freddy Scappatici was one of the first people ever interned. And he was held until 1974, three years, uh, roughly well, two and a half years. And then he was released. He was a staunch IRA man. Committed. Committed, absolutely committed IRA man. Could have got out earlier. All he had to do was to give an undertaking not to go back to the IRA. And he would have done about a year earlier than than he than he eventually did do. But he didn't he wouldn't he refused to do that. He refused to compromise. So he, he ended up he got out in in, in around January nineteen seventy four. And he was out for about seven or eight months. But during that time, he became the OC of Belfast. That's the most. That's the top man in, in the whole of the Belfast Brigade. And um, I mean, that's how highly it's how highly he was regarded. Mm -hmm. And then he was re-interned in about uh, September nineteen seventy four, and he was held until internment ended, which ended in December nineteen seventy five. In, in between times, he had, of course, he had already been married. He was married before the Troubles. But, you know, he had a wee family there. He went out and he, and he, and, uh, he got out of prison and, he, and he, he was a builder. He was a bricklayer. He started, started work and he started employing people. And he was involved in a tax scam called uh, an exemption scam. Complicated business, right? But it was... It was the British government, somebody must have been on the LSD or something to ever come up with such a crazy scheme. You paid your own tax at the end of the year. The whole thing was wild, crazy. But it was wide open to exploitation and Freddie was one of the guys who jumped in. So he was in the tax scam and then in 77 Jerry Adams got out of Lunkhouse and he had been agitating quite a while against the the old southern leadership. Not southern leadership, Billy McKee from the from Belfast was involved in the Army Council. 
as was Sean McStephan, Dahi O'Connell, and and guys like that. There as long maybe perhaps as well. They were they they were seen as the old old guard, the ancient regime. And so Adams came out and cut a long story short, he took over the reins of the IRA. Mm -hmm. And he changed things. One of the things he changed, he 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 he, pr he promoted the sales system mm -hmm. as opposed to the old company structure that the IRA had. And he also he also promoted the establishment of a unit which was called the Internal Security Unit. The primary purpose of the Internal Security Unit was to uh, was to locate informers or agents and deal with them and 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 this is when talk about dealing with them is the same way that Collins dealt with them, shoot them dead. Mm -hmm. And Scapatici was number two in in in, in eighteen seventy eight when this was formed. He was number two on that uh internal security. Mm -hmm. And then in nineteen eighty three he became OC and he became number one. And during all of that time, he was a British agent. He was working for the British. He was saying who lived and who died. And in other words, so was the British. And the thing about Scap was Scap always reported to his handler when someone was going to get killed. When they actually located someone or they believed they located someone, these guys weren't behind the door when it came to torturing suspects. Right, they they did torture suspects. We know that for a fact because it's uh, one of them. Quite a couple of them came to me, but one of them actually went public in my book. Steak knife sturdy war. A guy called Paddy McDade, and Paddy told the most horrendous story of being held in the Midlands down in down in um. Roscommon was it? Roscommon, how he had been uh put into a sleeping bag for three days. It made the defecate and piss in the sleeping bag, and Harry was Harry. They used him as a as an ice tray. They 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 extinguished their cigarettes and their butts and, and their cigars on them and lifted them up and dropped them and stuff like that. So there there was there was torture, and these guys tortured you. And if you signed on that dotted line, that was you were actually saying your own death sentence. Mm -hmm. And Scapatici was the driving force behind all of this, and. McDade wasn't an informer at all, was he? No, McDade wasn't an informer at all. Mm -hmm. McDade was a very active IRA man mm -hmm. who most definitely wasn't an informer. And, and I mean, they ended up, they had to let him go. Mm -hmm. And he's, he's still, still, he's a wee builder now, he works away, but wasn't an informer at all. Mm -hmm. And um, But if he had a saint on the dotted lane, he'd have been shot dead. That's it. If he had a broke, if they'd have broke him physically and said to him, you need to tell us, they'd have, made, they'd have done exactly what the branch was doing to our guys mm -hmm. in the prisons and in, in, in the interrogation centres. They were breaking them, they were making them sign statements, which were then presented to the diplomat courts and accepted. Exactly the same process. The only difference was if you signed on the dotted line for the Nutton Squad, you were, you were dead. Mm -hmm. The thing I was making, the original point I was making was Scapatiche. Every time someone was going to be shot dead, told his handlers what was going to happen. I, John, Mac, John McStay, will you say that as just a name? John McStay is going to be shot dead at 10 o'clock that night in such and such a place. Mm -hmm. So, and the handlers then passed it up the line to an outfit 
uh, an overall body called the Task Gaining Coordinating Group. It's actually referred to yesterday, uh, the other day, by the DPP. But this, this was the this was the, the British intelligence unit that controlled all intelligence in the north and actioned all intelligence. It consisted of the head of the of the head of special branch. Special branch had a big input into it. The the through the force reaction unit, and also MI five. Mm -hmm. They formed this body. This was an overarching body. Before someone was shot dead, someone from the Army Council of the IRA had to come in and pronounce the sentence, and they thought they were in control of the process. They weren't, weren't fuck all to do with it. They were letting them think they had control of it, but they weren't. These other guys were. And that's what Gabatici did. I mean, you have three things there that's, I think, bear repeating, because to people who wouldn't be as have as intricate a knowledge of the Troubles, you have three absurd things there. Number one, you have Jerry Adams setting up the ISU with the intention of stopping informers and the headman himself was an informer. You have the second thing in that if you, and I suppose this is a fault of many interrogations, not just the ISU, but whether, whether or not you were an informer and you signed it, you were shot all the same. Yes. And the third thing is they weren't even in charge of the process. The first time you hear this, you've written a book about it, you've heard it your whole yeah. life. This is incredible. It's very hard to understand how it got there. So how did they? Because at the start of the Troubles, the British intelligence was quite incompetent. Yeah. Say, when, they, when, they, when internment started, they were arresting grandfathers, sons, cousins who had nothing to do with the IRA. That's right. So how was it a gradual process? Was it sudden? Was it the matter of one man making a change that the British went from the height of incompetence, stoking the Troubles, giving a recruitment drive for the IRA to penetrating them at the very highest levels? Well, it was, it was a process with internment, as you quite rightly pointed out, the original 300 people who were uh, arrested on internment morning, right? About a quarter of them may have actually been active. The rest were all former men from the th from the 40s. Some of them, fuck sick, had been out in 1816. There was one old man, he, he must have been 86, Liam Mulholland, mm -hmm. must have been 86. And he was interned, and he loved it. I loved the thought that he was still a threat to, to the British, to the British government, <laughs> that, that they had to take him and intern and intern him. But that's that's that was, that's, and then there was men from the fifties, forties, etc., who weren't particularly active, but who were still, they were still on special branch lists. But they, the problem for them was they couldn't get the provisional IRA because other than the leadership of the likes of Billy McKee, Prince S. McCart. Leo Martin, etc. They weren't about. They they weren't going to be sitting in the house waiting on the cops coming to arrest them. So they did look for them, but they weren't about. And your man Cahill, Joe Cahill. So they didn't really know who the provisional IRA were. They knew who some of them were. They arrested some of them, and then they started seriously starting. Up until then, they they weren't. The intelligence wasn't as clued in. Then they started arresting people, and they and they brought them brought them into Hollywood. And Hollywood was a torture center. It was it's well chronicled by Father Father Murray and Father Dennis Fall, the degree, and that's where the hooded men, etc. That well, they weren't in Hollywood; they were down in Bolly Kindler. But you know, all this it, it became very, very physical, very torturous. So people started breaking. And they started giving names, and all of a sudden, 
that the old timers were put away. We had this new, all these new lists, and people started getting arrested, and they were tortured, and they told what they knew, and they started giving away arm stumps, etc. And all the time, the branch is building up their portfolio of suspects, and they're interning them. I mean, by 1972, there was something like 2,000 men interned. Mm-hmm. I was interning myself on the mate zone. So um, that was the start of, from then on, the, the intelligence started, they started to, um, intelligence became very important. Mm-hmm. It hadn't been important mm-hmm. because there was no IRA really prior to 1969. It's a handful of guys, mm-hmm. but they were doing absolutely nothing in name only. So it kind of swung, did it? Like at the start, the British were on the, you know, on the back foot as regards intelligence. And then Jerry Adams kind of recognized the need for, you know, keeping their mouth closed because, you know, they were building up the internment numbers. Before the ISU, he had the faculty of the unknowns, which served a similar purpose. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. So Freddie Scappuccici, was he, given the commitment to the cause you described, was he an easy pick for the ISU? To, to run it. Oh, absolutely. But Scott got out in 1975. He was what was known as a squirrel. He was an intelligence officer. He was someone who interrogated people who came out of uh, the interrogation centres to find out if they broke, if they were forms. He was always sort of way on the periphery of that. Not on the periphery. At the When he was out, he was at the heart of prisoners getting out of, at that time, it was Castle Ray Interrogation Centre. And he was, you know, he was always in those sort of intelligence sort of roles. So it wasn't as if he was, he was on the periphery. Mm-hmm. He was he was seen to be a very astute guy. Was he smart? Yes. You'd have to say he was. He certainly wasn't stupid. Mm-hmm. He knew what he was doing. And he had this intuition where he would have looked at you uh, during an interrogation and, and identified your weaknesses, mm-hmm. right? And um, and he was known to be the most skilled interrogator in the whole of the IRA. You know, um, what, yeah. What, he, what constitutes skilled in that respect? Well, skilled in the fact that he, he was the guy who broke most people. He was the guy who led interrogations Interrogations could have went on. Some interrogations of suspects went on for weeks on the end mm-hmm. uh, until the person who they were interrogating absolutely was at the end of Entether and would have signed up for dropping the bomb in Hiroshima. Right? Mm-hmm. And and that's what Scabatichi did. He, he would have wore them down and he was relentless and he was very skilled. If you said the wrong thing to him, he'd say, Oh, but you told me yesterday. Mm-hmm. You said you went down you went down to Grafton Street, but you told me yesterday at the same time you were in O'Connell Street. Mm-hmm. You can't be in the two places at the same time. Mm-hmm. So which one was it? Why are you telling me lies? What have you got to gain? And that's a sort of he was very skilled that way. Of course, you have the intellectual component there, but he was notorious for the physical component of his interrogations as well, wouldn't he? Well, I mean Scapatichi wasn't one of the ones that actually done the bidding. There was other guys there who sort of um I'm not saying they wallowed in it, but they certainly weren't weren't at all they weren't disinclined to 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 smash somebody up 
okay. and sliced them up right, not just hit them a couple of slaps. Mm -hmm. They had made sure they really hurt them. They went to extremes, mm -hmm. physical extremes, to beat people up, yeah. to get them to sign. And as you said, Paddy McDade testified Paddy McDade is a perfect example of it. Yeah. Those other guys were just as bad. Mm -hmm. I spoke to but they didn't want to, they didn't want to go into the book. Yeah. How does a man go from OC of Belfast to the ISU? I think you put four possible ways he got turned. You mentioned one example where John Wisely said that there might have been ideological disenchantment. Stephen Gray said there were venal reasons, of course, Scappuccini was partial to quite disturbing pornography. Porno, yeah, yeah. Preteen girls, I think, is mentioned. There was the other example that he was a walk-in, or the fourth was the tax fraud, which is the most likely way he was turned. Um, in my view, Scappuccini wouldn't have been easy turned. I don't think he was a walk-in. Okay. I mean, I've never thought that. Um, in my view, Scappuccini was turned something quite extreme. Mm -hmm. The tax thing is extreme enough because he was looking at seven years, okay, potentially for this tax fraud. He was a major. This was a major fraud. He made a lot of money out of it. You he said. made a lot of money. Yeah, he made a lot. Of, it was a fortune to be made out of it. I mean, mm -hmm. you were collecting. What actually you were doing was you were collecting the tax that everyone on the building site would have paid. And the idea was you collect the tax every week, and at the end of the year. You pay the tax. Mm -hmm. <laughs> How the fuck's going to do that? Yeah. <laughs> All right. So, and and, and you would have had a bum tax certificate anyway. You could have bought these things mm -hmm. from the original owner. Mm -hmm. Right. So, that was a serious, serious fraud. And there was people getting seven and eight years for that. Yeah. That's serious enough for him to be turned. Would it but have? The other one was that his, his sexual proclivities mm -hmm. right there was a talk rumor that he was about to be charged with with having sex with an underage girl mm -hmm. right that would have been serious enough to turn him mm -hmm. because that would have been had that have been the case his whole reputation within the IRA would have been totally destroyed. He'd have been lucky to be allowed to live in the, in the markets area. So this is my question. That's understandable is the wrong word, but it makes logical sense given not only would he have been sent to prison, but his whole life in Belfast, a successful life would have been turned upside down. But about the tax thing, like surely one knew the risk associated with, I mean, he was in charge of the ICU of informing on the IRA, like would eight years really have been so significant that he would risk his life for the rest of his life? You know, well, you see, it, it depends. He, he'd already done four years and three months mm -hmm. in internment, and he hadn't been charged with anything. Mm -hmm. And here he, here he would have been out, out maybe two or three years, and now he's looking maybe another eight years. So you don't really know the effect that that length of time in prison has on you. Mm -hmm. And it's more than possible that he would say, I ain't going back to jail. Mm -hmm. And someone said to him, well, the only way you're not going to go back to jail, friend, is to work with us. Mm -hmm. Right? Yes. And that is more than possible. And he wouldn't be the first one to be done and uh, to be caught like that. Mm -hmm. I mean, the whole premise behind turning someone into an agent is blackmail. Mm -hmm. Blackmail is always usually at the heart of what special branch 
or the force reaction unit did. Mm-hmm. I mean, they saw, they caught people having sex with with someone other than their wives. They threatened to, to ruin their marriage, their lives, etc. And they, they and they turned them, and that's what they did. Blackmail was at the heart of all agents. Well, not all of them, but most of them. Mm-hmm. And this would have been around the early eighties. He was turned. Early, no, my view is, and the view of those of his contemporaries is that he was turned in around 78. Okay. 77, 78, in around that time. Mm -hmm. Within the IRA then, the South Armagh Brigade was kind of independent from the rest. They resisted the cellularization Adams put forth, but they were also skeptical of SCAP, weren't they? Yes. How did this manifest? Where did this suspicion come from? And was there a bit of... We told you so at the end of it. Well, this came from uh, this came from the South Armagh guys themselves. There was a, a, a an informer had been arrested by the IRA and he was being held in South Armagh. And Scapatici and the guy and his then OC John Joe McGee had been down and interrogated him, and they and he started the ISU right. John he he was the OC of yes, the okay. IRA, right? They'd be they'd been down. They'd interrogated this informer, and the informer had admitted. To being an informer, well, the alleged informer admitted what they what that he had been an informer. I don't know the circumstances surrounding this case in terms of where he was beaten or what, but he certainly admitted it. So then two guys left. They had no sooner left than it was actually in the, in the south than the guardie that were holding this guy across the border. The guardie hit a house two doors up from where. The IRA people were holding the informer. Now, when they seen the guards coming, they grabbed them and run them out the back door and got away, right? And to cut a long story short, one of the leading men down there, and he's since died, a guy called Patrick o- O'Carlin, mm-hmm. he's a very senior Republican, put two and two together. And says, how did they know to hit? They they were obviously looking for the informer. How did they know to hit this house, mm-hmm. right? And he he was confident in that those from South Armagh would not have informed, right? Mm-hmm. Because they were still in the house. Yes. So they were hardly going to inform on themselves. So he says the only two people that left this house who knew it was Scapatichi and John Joe McGee. Okay. And for some reason, he didn't think it was John Joe. He thought it was Capatici, mm-hmm. which was very clever. And, and he, made, he made his business. He was a very, he was a senior, very senior Republican. He ended up on the Northern Command. Mm-hmm. And he turned around and he says, we don't, he sent word up to Belfast. He's, he's wrong. Wrong is a term that the IRA used to say that someone's an informer. Mm-hmm. He's working for the other side. He's wrong. Belfast ignored it. And why, given the repute that the South Armagh Brigade had? Well, I, I don't know. Yeah. I, I don't know, Stephen. I, I don't know. But nothing happened. Scapatici just went about his business mm-hmm. as per normal. But Patrick O'Carlin said, don't send him down to us again. Mm-hmm. We don't want him down here. We're not going to talk. We're not going to play with him. We're not going to do anything with this guy. Mm-hmm. And he never, he never ever got back into South Armagh. Okay. And when did he... Um, leave the ISU? When was the position moved on? When did he kind of have the descent into narcissistic um, panic, which you describe in the book? Collapse. Collapse. 
it all culminated in the in, in the when the IRA arrested a guy called Sandy Lynch in January nineteen eighty nine. Sandy Lynch was brought to a house up in Anderson and he admitted. Didn't I don't even think they beat him up. I, I don't even think they did. But he admitted it was a setup. The special branch knew that he was going to be arrested by the IRA, and they said to him, "Don't worry, we've got your back. You're going to be arrested, and 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 and, and etc. But we've got your back." So Lynch was arrested, brought to the house in Anderson Scapatichi went in. But that stage, John Joe McGee was no longer OC at the scap of, of, the, of the internal security unit. Scapatichi interrogated him, determined that he was an informer, and left the house. And then on Sunday morning, I think it was a Sunday morning, I'm not totally certain on that, but Danny Morrison came um, into, the, into the house, and Morrison had no sooner put his foot in the house than the cops at the house. Mm-hmm. And they arrested Morrison. They arrested five other people and they rescued Lynch. And Scapatici wasn't one of those that was arrested. He had been he had gone. Mm-hmm. But it was quite obvious. But Scapatici's fingerprint was caught on the security buzzer. I know the buzzers yet mm-hmm. to see if you're wired up. Mm-hmm. His fingerprint was caught on the battery of the security buzzer, which meant that that placed him in the room with Lynch. Mm-hmm. Was it the branch or the IRA that found the fingerprint? The police, forensic cops, right, found him, mm-hmm. CID. And so I put him right in the middle of it. Yes. Not only that, but Lynch said, I recognize his voice. And the guy who owned the house made extensive statements saying that Freddie Scap had been more or less in charge of the whole process mm-hmm. and had been back and forward to the house during Lynch's, Lynch was held for about two days mm-hmm. during Lynch's interrogation. Mm-hmm. So there was a, it was cool, cumulatively, yes. there was quite a body of evidence against him. Very difficult to, to get out of the, the fingerprint one. That was a forensic one. Mm-hmm. So he went on the run. He went down to Dublin. He went to Dundalk. He stayed down there for two years, right? He relinquished his position, had to relinquish his position as OC of internal security. Mm-hmm. Someone else took that job on. And he came back and fucking madness, I swear to God, he was arrested. And the solicitor went up to Castle Rape Interrogation Center with a letter from the lady who the house in which see the house in which Lynch was being held. They got the lady to sign a letter saying that he had been doing electrical work in her house. And that must have been how his fingerprint got on the battery. And that was brought up. And this was all pre-planned. Yeah. Right? A top cop called Koski came up with this plan as to how Freddie could be brought back into Belfast and not end up in court. Not end up in court. Mm-hmm. And this was this was the idea. Get a letter to say he was doing electrical work in the house. And hence, that's the reason why his fingerprint was on the battery. Mm-hmm. It would never stand up in court. No. But it was all pre-arranged, so we got out. Mm-hmm. And my understanding is, 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 is there's a there's various various sort of um, interpretations of how the IRA treated him. But the common one and one is, is that he was shunned, which is a, a light punishment in itself, given well the level of informants. All IRA volunteers when they came out of Castle Ray were dark roomed. Okay, dark roomed means that they were. 
they were interrogated by the IRA as to what they said, mm -hmm. what was said to them, you know, what were they in for? The whole thing is you're put into a room with no with curtains drawn, you're put into a corner, and you're questioned by people behind you. Mm -hmm. That didn't happen to Scapatici. Mm -hmm. He just came out and went about his business and said to him, by the way, you're, we no longer need you. Mm -hmm. He should have been dark room like mm -hmm. everyone else. Mm -hmm. They should have just, how the fuck did you get out? Mm -hmm. Because the evidence against him was very strong. Mm -hmm. Right? The, the fingerprint one would have been devastating in court. Mm -hmm. Right? No judge would have accepted that letter because she was just co-accused. The lady who signed the letter was charged with the abduction of Lynch. Okay, isn't that a persuasive alibi? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So, but never stood up in court. Yeah. So the, the, the other thing was, the important one, there's two things. This is a crucial time. Yes. Number one, he was in dark room by the IRA and he should have been. Mm -hmm. The IRA should have pulled him in, says, how did you get out, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. What did you, he actually spoke to the branch. Mm -hmm. You weren't allowed to talk to them. You give your name and address, and that was it. Mm -hmm. And you sat there and you didn't open your mouth. He actually gave an explanation, right? Mm -hmm. Which was amazing. And they didn't bring him in. They didn't dark room him. They didn't interrogate him, right? And you have to say, why didn't they? Right? Yeah. Why didn't they? And that's one of the big questions. And there's talk that they suspected then that he was at it very strongly suspected, right? But for some reason, he seemed to have... I could be wrong. He seemed to have some sort of power over them. Over? Over the IRA. Yeah. That they couldn't hurt him. And that's just not then. That's 1981 when he came back. And the other thing was, at that particular time, he did have his narcissistic collapse mm -hmm. because he was no longer the centre. Freddie Scapp was used to being the centre of attention. Mm -hmm. When he walked into a room, IRA volunteers came to attention. Mm -hmm. And he was seen to be a man of great integrity, a man of power. Mm -hmm. His name was absolute. When Scott went into your town, people shit themselves, volunteers, because it meant trouble. Mm -hmm. Then all of a sudden, he's a nobody. He's just one of the five hits like the rest of us, mm -hmm. right? And he doesn't like it one bit. And he's very, you know, and he can't, he can't, he's no longer privy to the workings of the internal security unit. And all that's happening within the IRA, mm -hmm. where, you know, he's no longer got access to the likes of Adams and the employees. He's out, right? And he has a, he has a, a, a narcissistic collapse. He then goes to his, his army handlers, his through handlers, and he says, am I still important to you guys? And they bring him to see the general officer commanding the British Army in the north. And he says, you're a great man. We, we love you. You're our golden egg. But he asked to see him. He asked to see him. That's, yes, yes. That's, that's the narcissism kicking in. Yeah. You know, mm -hmm. he then he then goes to the family of Joe Mulhern and other families and pretends that he was there when their sons were getting shot dead when he wasn't, mm -hmm. right? But And that he tried to humanely dispatch them, mm -hmm. right? And, uh, was, you know, and he does all these sort of bizarre sort of things to keep himself relevant, mm -hmm. to keep himself in the picture. And it really is, it's, it's a narcissistic collapse. And it's around about then that he starts having very serious mental problems okay. and starts seeing psychiatrists and stuff. Did he know that his codename was Steak Knife? Oh, I don't know. You don't know? 
was steak knife given contemporaneously did this title come about because of the brutal way in which he tortured people or was it like a a sick coincidence well i spoke to a, a former fru soldier called ian hurst ian hurst was the guy who wrote the original steak knife book mm-hmm. along with a guy called harkin mm-hmm. And um, he says that steak knife was just a name that came off the computer. Okay. Um, he says it had no real relevance. It was just computer threw out a list of names and they picked steak knife. To scarily apt. Oh, absolutely. The man he was. Yeah, yeah. The PSNI said last week, um, the, um, the Canova report investigated the crimes to do with um, Freddie Scappuccici. I Originally, I think they said there was 30 people yeah. under investigation. Last December, they said 16. There wasn't enough evidence. This past Tuesday, they said there was another four, which leaves only a handful left. Were you surprised that there wasn't enough evidence? And what does it tell you about ever trying to get justice for the crimes committed by the... This is a... Canova is a massive cover-up. It's a whitewash. No one's going to be charged with anything. The NRA people were never going to be charged anyway. Mm-hmm. I mean, these things happen. These are... These interrogations etc and killings happened in the 1980s if they'd have had evidence they'd have charged these guys mm-hmm. long before now yeah. that, you know Canova was supposed to find out what happened here it was supposed to find out how the process worked from Freddie Scapatici's point of view what murders he was involved in who knew who was going to be murdered on both sides and on the IRA side and in the security force side. Now, they obviously knew who the, the, the intelligence, British intelligence knew who was involved on the IRA side because Freddie would have told them mm-hmm. on the day. So they knew who'd done the killings. They knew who was on uh, in the internal security unit. They, they knew were suspects were being questioned in real time. Mm-hmm. They knew where suspects was going to get shot dead in real time, mm-hmm. and they alerted it to happen. Right? Freddie told his handlers over. He told his handler. His handler told his CEO in the free. His CEO in the free told the guys on the tasking and coordinating group, the head of Spicer Branch, the Spicer Branch guys, the free MI5. They were well aware that Oliver. Parker is going to get shot dead at 10 o'clock the night at the corner of Dunville Street mm-hmm. by the IRA. They knew this. And they could have saved Oliver Parker, but they didn't. Mm-hmm. He says, fuck Oliver Parker. What's more important, Oliver Parker or Freddie Scapatici? Mm-hmm. And he says, Freddie Scapatici, we can't risk Freddie being out of it. True, Oliver will have to go. Mm-hmm. And they done this again and again and again. And I don't know the intricacies of this. I read the report the other day, mm-hmm. and I read that the, the TCG stuff, there's a whole section of it relating to the TCG stuff mm-hmm. that came out on Tuesday. And basically what it said was that there's no records of the TCG at all. At all, at all. At all, at all. There's no... There's, if you were Oliver's parents, mm-hmm. and you realised that your son could have been saved, you would want to know... Who made the decision to let my Oliver shot dead, mm-hmm. be shot dead on the TCG? I want to know who, who are these guys mm-hmm. that decided who lived and who died? Where's the minutes of their meetings? Yeah. There's no minutes. We don't know who they are. 
this is a bit cover up. Yeah. This is a bit cover up. And John Butcher has been very clever. He's worked the families. He's he's been down. He said to the family, "I'm one of you. I'm with you. Here's here's what happened to your brother." But he doesn't touch the big stuff. Mm-hmm. British security is still safe. Mm-hmm. Those who really were in charge of the decision-making process vis-a-vis the task and coordinating group aren't going to be touched with any of this. This is one of the things, you know, learning about the troubles from scratch, the level of very robust evidence like that people discuss yeah. about the IRA. And yet then it seems the courts say, or, you know, the government says, well, this isn't sufficient evidence. A prime example is Jerry Adams. I mean, Ed Maloney wrote an entire one of the most detailed books ever, yeah, The Secrets of the IRA. Yeah. And yet then with a straight face, journalists have to write after, you know, who's Jerry Adams, who still denies being the IRA. Yes. So that's one example. And then so you have the example of one of the headmen of the IRA. And then you have the British saying, oh, well, there's insufficient evidence to charge our own. It's just a common trend where there is no moral high ground kept and it is just a dirty war, like you described. Well, it's... it's, it's Filthy. Yeah. I mean, these TCG guys wasn't just the informers or the, the agents. Some of these people weren't agents. Mm-hmm. These were some of these people were innocent people who they allowed to be murdered. Mm-hmm. Or the, the, they were IRA people, but sometimes they had IRA people shot dead to move other more important IRA people in their view and into in the position. Mm-hmm. Pawns, as Mick Clifford said. Like pawns in the game. Like pawns in the game. And that's that's and that's the way it was. It was filthy. Mick Clifford makes a core handle on it, I'll tell you. But that's what it was. And they're gonna the thing for me was I had hoped that Canova would get to the heart of this. Maybe I was naive. I had hoped that Canova the IRA people involved, they knew he was involved. Everybody knows the IRA people was involved. Everybody knew he was in the nothing squad. If you were any way remotely Republican at all, you knew it was John Joe McGee, it was Paddy Monaghan, it was Freddie Scap, and it's a list as long as your arm, mm-hmm. right? Not as long as your arm, but it's about 13 and 14. And they were all fairly well known. But I had hoped from Canova that we would be able to see the intricacies of the process whereby this TCG outfit mm-hmm. made the decisions to allow people to die. And I, I still hold out a faint hope that Canova will say, while we can't prove it, we believe that the British Intelligence Service allowed people to die. Mm-hmm. That, would be, that would be important. Mm-hmm. If he, and I've heard he's going to say that. But the more I see of this drip feed of this one's not going to be charged, and that one's not going to be charged, the more I'm beginning to doubt whether that is really going to happen. Mm-hmm. And we're just, just going to get a total, total uh, whitewash. Kevin Winters, the solicitor, who represents most of the families involved in this, actually put a statement out yesterday, mm-hmm. KRW Law, in which he described the whole process as a whitewash. Mm-hmm. So I'm not the only one saying it. I have a couple of questions about your own time in yeah. the IRA yeah. and then the blanket. I don't know, it's it, reading about everything to do with the troubles. My entire generation, especially 
if you grew up in the Republic are insulated entirely. But you weren't, you were a little older than I was when you went on the blanket. Yeah. Um, what motivated you to join the IRA? But then more so to go on the blanket, because there's one thing to be a membership of an organization that you, that you believe is fighting for justice. But there's another thing to risk, you know, so much to your family. Can you yeah. describe that? Well, I came from a Republican family. My father had been in the IRA. He'd been actually at one stage. He had been the Belfast commander during the 1940s. And all his brothers, Seamus and Albie and Johnny, etc., they were all they were all in the IRA. They were all in turn. One of his brothers, Albie's younger brother, got 10 strokes of 12 strokes of the cat in the entails in 10 years for having a gun battle with the cop. So I came from that background and I was when I grew up. My father's friends were all in the IRA. They were Billy, Billy McKee, who was one of the founding fathers of the Divisional IRA, he was never out of our house. I mean, he'd be called him Uncle Billy. So I grew up in that Republican ethos, and I was, I read things. I mean, I read everything, Don Breen and, and, and all of those books. And I mean, at the same time, I was doing it, I was, I was doing GCS, GCEs, etc. But I was indoctrinated to a point. It's, I don't know if indoctrinated is the right word, but I certainly grew up within the with the idea that Ireland was in, the Irish the island of Ireland was entitled to be a unitary state. Mm -hmm. That a united Ireland was not a preposterous proposition, and it was not particularly an extremist proposition. I grew up with a historical uh, understanding that the partition of Ireland, uh, the North, for example, was. Created on the back of an art, uh, of a of a sectarian headcount, which was intended to ensure the perennial unionist control of 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 the statelet of Northern Ireland. So I grew up with all that. I didn't have to work at it. So when the troubles came, nineteen sixty nine came. There's whole Catholic streets being attacked, etc. You have the RUC, you have the B specials. There's no defence per se of nationalists. No one there defending nationalists. The IRAs, the IRAs, original IRA for me seemed to step into the breach. And it wasn't too hard for me anyway, because I mean, as I say, I had grown up in this with this Republican ethos. So joining the IRA for me was merely uh, a step, that a natural step, right? And um, and to me, when when things started kicking off in terms of the war, this was just continuation of the War of Independence, right? Mm -hmm. The War of Independence was left in a very sort of half-finished, half half-not-finished you know, half not finished state. And then you had, the, you had the, the, the formation of Northern Ireland, etc. To me, this was the War of Independence, Mark II. Mm -hmm. This was unfinished business from 1919-1921. So I had no problem with that. Mm -hmm. I had no problem joining the IRA. And there was British soldiers all around the fucking place. Mm -hmm. They were at the top of the streets with their rifles. Mm -hmm. You walked out of the house, they were throwing you up against the wall. They were searching you. They were running you up the street. They were arresting you. They were beating you up. All of that. There's a common thing that is said that when the British originally came, that the nationalist community welcomed them. Yes. Would you have felt the same? Or were, were you always, because of that background, your family background, were you sceptical that they were here at all? Oh, well, 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 I did welcome them. And I mean, at the end of the day, we would probably have all been, we, the onslaught against Catholic 
against the Catholic areas were they continued, right? Mm -hmm. Because there was no guns. There was no means of defending those areas in 1869. The, the guys that had the 30-30 burning machine guns that had the, the, the rifles, that had the, the firearms, were all cops, right? And they were actually leading the arsonists who were burning the houses in the streets. They were leading them. They were firing and then making sure that nobody disturbed them or attacked them when they were doing it. So, in my view, the, the whole, had the British Army not arrived in 69, there would have been wholesale, it was wholesale, but I mean wholesale on a on an unprecedented scale, mm -hmm. burning of Catholics in Belfast, mm -hmm. uh, burning of Catholic homes and streets. As it was, it was, it was pretty, it was thousands of people were burnt out of their properties. Mm -hmm. But that aside, of course, I was glad to see the British Army coming in because it, they brought order. Mm -hmm. But that soon changed. I mean, that soon changed. And um, they, they ended up being the oppressors. They were the guys who, who enforced the curfew in the falls in 1970, right? Mm -hmm. Who, um, who turned completely mm -hmm. against the Catholic population. So wasn't it hard not to like them? Had you realized at the start that you would have had to spend so many years on the blanket, do you think you would have joined all the same? No. No. That's like saying, do you regret it? Yes, I do. I do regret. I regret all of it. I regret, personally, I regret ever being involved. I regret that all that time was spent in jail by all those people. I regret all the people, all the people who died, right? All the tears that were shed, all of that, because at the end of the day, it didn't work. The war didn't succeed. We still live. We're sitting here now, right? Mm -hmm. Part of Great Britain. It didn't work. So, of course, I regret it all. And of course, given an opportunity, only a fool would say, I'll do that again. Mm -hmm. Right? Why would you why would you repeat something that, that is demonstrably uh a failure? Was that a difficult process to make that realization or come yeah. to this conclusion of yeah. disillusionment? It was, yeah, yeah. You don't you don't it's not something that you embrace overnight, especially when you've given so much of your life, right? Mm -hmm. I mean I got out of prison, uh, I think I was 27, and between the ages of 16 and 27, I had spent eight years in jail. So really, I had only three years of, of youth, mm -hmm. right? And I mean, I was a very committed Republican. Truth be told, I was. I, I believed the, the whole nine to five of it. I believed in the whole socialist thing. I believed, and I still believe, that the British have no right to be in Ireland, that their presence is iniquitous, and that the Irish people as a body are entitled to the freedom that every other country in Europe enjoys, right? So I, I believe that. I just don't believe in armed struggle. Mm -hmm. I think it's a waste of life. I think it's a waste of time. I have rallied against it, reeled against it, for 20 years now. Mm -hmm. 
but getting, as you said, getting to the point where you where you actually cross over and you say, you know what, it was wrong. Mm-hmm. When you gave the interview to Anthony McIntyre for the Boston College tapes, was it in that moment that the disillusionment started? And do you think if the Boston College project hadn't happened that you would have reached the same conclusion? Oh, it's a, I, I don't know. Yeah. Boston College was a watershed in my life. We sat here like this, me and Hunt, just the way we are now, in this very room. And we discussed, and we had 10 interviews with Boston, had 10 different tapes, and we got to the last one. And I didn't want to talk about the hunger strike. But Marcus is a former banker man himself. And so we did. And before I knew it, I was telling him the inner secrets of it. And uh, it was, I've always described it as an alcoholic saying, my name is John Black and I'm an alcoholic. It's like declaring that you are that which you didn't want to declare up until that point. So when I told him that, it was there was no going back. And um, that was the moment when everything changed because if you believe that the hunger strike was prolonged to secure the election of Owen Karen and from Minnesota to Rome, and I'm not 100% convinced of that. It could also been that they, that they overestimated their, their, their bargaining bargaining strength but if that is a very strong possibility and if if if, 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 if that's in the equation then you have to say such cynicism mm-hmm. where the fuck did this level of cynicism come from right mm-hmm. and if, if they're capable if, if it's the case that they prolonged it to get on car and elected if that is the case then what is not possible and once you start asking yourself those type of questions, it inevitably leads to a wider perspective. Mm-hmm. And you start looking at things differently. Mm-hmm. And somewhere along the line, I I, I, trend, I tend to look at things, decomplicate things, especially things that would appear complicated. And I looked at the I look at the whole thing. The Good Friday Agreement was up and running. It was had it had its problems in the early in the early in the early two thousands, but it was up and running. The war had come and gone, and we still lived in. And this is how I, I simplified it. We still live in the United Kingdom, mm-hmm. so therefore, all the effort, all the tears, all the deaths, were in vain, mm-hmm. because we didn't get the outcome that was intended. Mm-hmm. So therefore, it's all in vain. As most IRA, all IRA campaigns basically are, mm-hmm. right? And once you come to that conclusion, right, then it's it's an awakening. Mm-hmm. I mean, nobody else was saying this at the time. There was a handful of us saying it. it was Anthony McIntyre, Tommy Gorman, Brandon Hughes, mm-hmm. myself, right? Two or three other guys, all former blanket men, right? Saying the unsayable, don't forget, the provost was saying it was a draw. They were saying that we weren't defeated and they weren't defeated. Not not true. Yeah, not true. They walked away with their 
you know, the kingdom's still intact. Mm-hmm. We walked away with nothing. That's one of the um, the most, I think, solemn points that really Sunningdale, I think you said this yourself, was almost more advanced. Sunningdale, should, uh, well, the, pro- the problem with Sunningdale was that it was too early. Yeah, and then the, the unionists, of course, they were the impasse. Yeah, but we were totally against Sunningdale. Yeah. To us, to Republicans, and then including myself in this, mm-hmm. Sunningdale was a, a compromise too far. Yeah. Right? Even sharing, sharing power with unionism did not fill the, 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 the void for us. Mm-hmm. For us, it was United Ireland. Mm-hmm. Sharing power with unionism would have been sharing power with unionism within the constitutional border of the United Kingdom, mm-hmm. right? And that was, that was no good to us. We wanted a republic, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. We wanted a 32-county republic. Mm-hmm. And Sunningdale at that time was a long way from it. Yeah. So the Republican movement opposed it. And it's the same. I mean, I sometimes make the analogy with the blanket. We had five demands, and in reality, what we should have been doing, I'm talking about Bobby himself and Beck and those of us who, who were in the leadership, we should have been saying, what's the minimum we can live with? Right? Rather than saying we want everything, right? And putting the Brits in a position whereby they would have to literally give in. Surrender, mm-hmm. and given that they had that they held the strings of power, that wasn't going to happen. We should have been saying, "What can we live with here?" And we weren't doing that, mm-hmm. and it's the same with the struggle. Mm-hmm. It was never there was never a, a situation whereby, maybe not never, but Adams and Co were very instrumental in in bringing an end to it. And certainly, John Hume was enormous, but. Republicans weren't are traditionally not uh, conditioned, right, mm-hmm. to accept anything less than utopia. Yeah, the thing that strikes me now is that you're able to say, or you believe that you know the struggle was in vain, but yet at the same time you regret going in because of the personal matters and so on. Yet the Republican, um, maybe establishment is the wrong word, but in Sinn Fein, and you know, it's that well, it was never in vain, and we didn't lose, and it's kind of double think to an extent. How can you say we didn't lose? Yeah. For fuck's sake. Where's this 32 county soldiers republic? Yeah. I don't see it. Mm-hmm. As far as I'm concerned, we're still in the United Kingdom. We did lose. You want to lose things. These measures, these things are gauged, right? By who comes out the winner. Demonstrably so. And it's the British. Mm-hmm. There's no draw. There was no draw. British didn't give the IRA their guns. Mm-hmm. IRA decommissioned their guns, right? Mm-hmm. British still pays, still puts sixteen billion pound block grant in here every year, mm-hmm. right? There is no republic. There's no thirty-two county republic, right? There's a republic. It's not a thirty-two county republic. For Republicans to say it was a draw is demonstrably nonsense. Do you think there's a white lie or a justified lie? To have brought about it's, peace. It's, it's, it's uh, yes, yes. It was. It's conditioning. It was too much for the leadership 
to turn around and say, guys, we're not going to get a republic. Forget about it. Mm-hmm. Aye. Put the guns away. Put them, put the fucking, put them back in the, in the, in, in, in the dumps, right? Uh, it ain't going to work. It's too much because there's been too much, too much um, blood shed and too much blood given. Mm-hmm. And so they had to say to the, they had to say to the volunteers, "Look, it's a draw. We can live with the draw." And that was a that was something that was received favorably, because people wanted to receive it favorably. Mm-hmm. People didn't want the blinkers to come off their eyes and say, "Hey, I've just woke up in the United Kingdom." Mm-hmm. Well, that's a draw. Well. What was our what was our half of the of the draw? Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Our half of the draw was that we woke up in the United Kingdom. My last question now. I think it was around the time of the nineteen seventy four ceasefire. I forget who Ochanna Brodig maybe one um that said, you see, the thing is the thing that the British don't understand is behind every IRA man with a gun that's willing to do a ceasefire. Is another man behind him ready to die for Ireland? What would you say to Irish nationalist Republicans, the country over, that still think that are willing to give what you gave for the movement? That would be willing to give to give their life for it, even if it's just through violence. And you know, we're entering a period as well that's quite violent in the world that hasn't been like it between Ukraine, Gaza, so on. What would you say to the young person that has an appetite for violence? I'd say stop, kid. Stop, son. Stop, young lady. Stop and think, right? And look, you don't need to look back that far. Look at the provisional IRA. Look at the effort that the provisional IRA put into it. A 30-year campaign, right? Which will, which was, has been unequaled, right? In Irish history. I mean, the War of Independence only lasted two years. Which was unequaled in Irish history, which was fought over continents, which was fought on Europe, European continent, which was fought in England, which was fought in Ireland, right? Don't fall into the trap of thinking that the British are going to get on boats and go back to Britain, right? And leave the chaos that is here that would be left behind them. That isn't going to happen. Stop. Don't do it. There's no nothing in it for you except jail or death. Richard O'Rourke, thank you very much for coming on to the podcast. You're welcome. That was our conversation with Richard O'Rourke. If you enjoyed the podcast, please like and subscribe. Thank you to our sound engineer, JJ Vernon. And until next time, thank you for listening to Bramcast.